Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 215 of Yoga Land. Today's guest is author and religious studies professor Andrea Jane. I've had Andrea on the show before. Last time we spoke about her book, Selling Yoga from Counterculture to Pop Culture. And this is a book that I think is a must read for every yoga teacher out there. It's one of the best books I've read in terms of tracing the globalization of yoga without oversimplifying or vilifying, quite frankly, modern yoga's evolution. This time she is being interviewed by Jason for her newest book, which is called Peace Love Yoga, The Politics of Global Spirituality. Andrea is obviously an academic. She's a professor. And so this book is dense and hard to summarize in a pithy way. But essentially what Andrea attempts to do is to look at global spirituality and how it supports neoliberal capitalism in the way, in the way that it's packaged. So it, it can be a little, it's easy to get defensive, right? When we're in the yoga community and we are hearing someone offer a critique of certain aspects of our culture and community, but Jason and I both appreciate Andrea so much. She is not in the community, so it's actually easier for her to be a bit more objective. She has more space to step back and make connections that she sees and there's just a lot to learn from her. So enjoy the episode. I can't wait to hear what you think. Also, I forgot to say, the previous episode that Andrea and I did together was episode 200, so go back and listen to that one too. I think you will enjoy hearing Jason in the role of interviewer again. This is something he's enjoying more and more these days, and he does a great job. You get to hear him in his previous lifetime as an activist and a philosophy major. So enjoy the interview. Okay, Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the last time that you and I spoke was a function of, I invited you to come in and have a conversation with me. And then we did a little bit of a Q&A in module three of my teacher training program. I had read Selling Yoga and Andrea had had you on the podcast to have a conversation about that book. And it was such a nice thing to be able to talk to you and be able to incorporate. I mean, I didn't incorporate you into the training officially. You weren't part of the faculty, but to have your voice and to have the student base be able to ask questions was really lovely. And that was just prior to the publication of this book, Peace, Love, and Yoga right? So yeah. Um, so it's really nice to have you back on and you have written yet another nice, simple, lighthearted, easy read. Thank you. <laughs> you, you, you have written a, a, a dense, real... <laughs> I was a little surprised by your characterization. Yes, that, that, was, the, uh, that was me uh, making light of... <laughs> a very well-researched, really dense book that is much less about the practice and the history and the broader commodification of yoga and much more specifically about some of the neoliberal and some of the global capitalist ramifications of kind of the current 
broader context of yoga. Is that a fair enough statement? Yeah, I think that's right. I was interested in the second book in offering a stronger critique of the politics underlying popular spirituality at large, but especially yoga. There's a couple of small things I want to parse. And I think that these will be helpful for people that have read the book and also people that haven't read the book. So as I'm processing the book, something that's coming to me is that as you see it, that the identity formations that occur in the broader context of yoga. So a context of yoga that is often about no bad vibes, about peace, love, that that undermines progressive politics and progressive actions. And that the process of purchasing, whether it's spiritual gangster clothing and adopting a lifestyle that focuses on on comfort and kind of self-involvement perpetuates neoliberalism and the consequences of global capitalism. The, the book is, has so many layers to it, but do you feel like that's, a, that's kind of a clear underlying of it? Yeah. What I argue in that book is largely that popular spirituality and the yoga industry at large, these are complicit in neoliberal capitalism. And so I'm particularly concerned in the book about what I talk about in terms of uh, individual governmentality or neoliberal governmentality. That is this call for individuals to self-regulate all the time as if we have power over our individual circumstances when largely individuals in the contemporary world do not have power over their contemporary circumstances. So they're subject to forces beyond their control, social structures, economic structures, political structures that determine their lives. And so whereas the yoga industry might tell us, you know, take control of your life, decrease stress, take a yoga class, that doesn't really offer a structural intervention that would prevent the type of stress people are living with today that are really caused by social structures, larger structures. So there's kind of another layer, and then I want to pick up on what you just said, which is, I think another layer that I'm, I'm looking to parse in this is, is whether the analysis and the criticism in the book is less about how people practice modern yoga and more about the way modern yoga and kind of the broader spiritual milieu package the lifestyle and product components of the practice, right? So is the problem that we are going to yoga practice instead of doing more overt, direct political action right? Or is the problem that it isn't just that yoga has become commodified, it's that yoga is commodified in a way that actually is that actually is conservative, that it's a little bit more self-involved, a little bit more self-absorbed, and that it actually undermines the inclination for people to be more socially engaged. Is it a problematic that yoga almost fits into a rugged individualism or an Ayn Randian belief in the self as the arbiter of all things? Is it that the practice itself, or is it the broader, the broader taste culture products that people buy into? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I would never suggest to someone that they should not go to a yoga class because I think there's a lot of evidence-based support for yoga as something that can be very helpful in people's lives, whether it's for their physical or their mental uh, health. And so I think it can absolutely be advantageous for individuals to practice yoga. Uh, It's not the practice itself that's the problem. As you put it, it's the packaging. And so it's the discourses and texts of the yoga industry. So whereas a lot of my colleagues in the academic study of religion study traditional religious religious texts from the Bible to the Bhagavad Gita, I'm interested in the texts printed across yoga wear. And I Mm. study the discourses as sort of religious texts, like what are these saying about yoga practitioners' values, commitments, politics? And I make the argument that what happens in, in this sort of cultural context broadly is that we consumers acknowledge the problems of capitalism. We're uncomfortable with environmental degradation. We're uncomfortable with widespread inequity. We see these things. And so we're seeking through our deeply valued practices like yoga to resist the problems of capitalism and cultivate different attitudes, different values, and even different communities. But we end up being complicit nonetheless in capitalism. So for example, we might be uncomfortable with environmental degradation that's connected to capitalism. And so we only purchase certain quote unquote eco-friendly or green products. But what we're doing there is we're resisting capitalism by participating in it. We're still buying certain products. We're still buying commodified products. And so this sort of consumption performs our anti-capitalism for us, right? We've done our part. We bought the biodegradable paper plates or the organic yoga wear. And that can serve to kind of contain our resistance. So as you put it, you know, our yoga practice replaces political action. And I think that the practice itself isn't the problem, but ideally we would wed it to a more kind of revolutionary attitude that cultivated alternative communities in different kinds of social structures that would more support the kind of activism that would dismantle social structures that are damaging and oppressive today, including any those that support the kind of environmental degradation we're seeing all over the world. Right. So let, let's say I am a, a normal, just good all around decent person. That's a real, that's a real jump in my case, but this is a hypothetical. Okay. So just a good old fashioned person. I want people to be well. I'm uncomfortable with social inequality. I'm uncomfortable with climate change. I'm uncomfortable with what I'm seeing in the news about various fronts from George Floyd to misogyny to any number of things. And so I walk into a yoga studio and there's a shirt that says, don't worry, be happy. Or there's a shirt that says, you know, right, good, good vibes only, or 
think globally, act, act locally. And so I buy that thing and I'm done. Right. So, so that becomes kind of the, I, maybe fetish is too strong of a word for it, but because that, that then becomes my token political action instead of taking yeah. actual political action. So it blunts a more progressive action and, and kind of along like the Chomsky's work, it, it kind of come out, like my descent has been commodified and therefore rendered not only inactive, but it's been, but it further perpetuates global capitalism, which you would articulate is at the root of so many of these problems. Is that kind of like a, a fair kind of easy scenario that would play out? Yes, exactly. And my concern is that the, you know, that kind of consumption does prevent more substantive political action that uh, would dismantle things like capitalism, patriarchy. So especially, you know, we we don't just hear environmental messages come across through yoga texts, but we hear also messages about empowering women. And these are really important feminist messages we see, we see again printed across yoga wear and yoga packaging and yoga teacher trainings. But do those yoga communities actually engage in in real critical conversations about how they can structure their own yoga communities differently so that patriarchy isn't shaping the way power is distributed. And there's, you know, critical reflection on gender power. And, you know, those are the more substantive questions, but instead of kind of asking that those questions and taking the time to reflect on them, there's more kind of superficial gestures sort of anti-patriarchy or women's empowerment. Right. In the book, you, you use the phrase gestural subversion quite a bit. So can you give another example or two of, of how you use it in the book, this, this, this concept of gestural subversion? Yeah. So I, I draw on a number of uh, social theorists here who make the argument that it's not that consumers are so dumb that they don't see the problems of capitalism. So that's I also why I avoid the term fetish, because fetish implies or has this connotation of, of like dumbed down consumers who don't really know what they're buying or what it means. I don't think consumers are dumb. I don't think that they're duped into thinking that capitalism is, for the most part, healthy or at least entire, you know, they might think it's healthy in some ways and not in others. But I think they do see the problems with capitalism. But they, their consumer goods perform their anti-capitalism for them insofar as, say, they buy organic yoga wear. This makes them feel better about the impact of their consumption on the environment. And so, you know, consumers, I write in the book about how consumers are uncomfortable increasingly with images of pollution and, and plastic invading our oceans. And Plastic is also invading our clothing. It's in almost everything we wear. And so we might opt for an organic made yoga wear company. And likewise, in a more kind of abstract sense, like turning from shifting from the yoga wear example, we see women struggling in the workplace all the time. And this is because women still work that second shift. They go to work and then they come home and they're expected to do more at home. 
especially exacerbated with the current pandemic. There have been several studies already noting that women are falling out of the workplace at a rate incomparable to men. And so what happens with women stressed at the workplace? They're told to take a yoga class or study mindfulness. And so here, the burden is put on their own shoulders to resolve the problem that is, in fact, structural. Rather than institutional changes like offering more parental leave time or childcare at the workplace, women are expected to take on the burden of resolving their own oppression. So those are a couple of examples, one with regard to the environment, the other with regard to patriarchy, where spiritual products from yoga wear to a yoga class to a mindfulness class contain our dissent, right? We mm. see the problem. The, you know, we see that our female colleagues are suffering, but instead of making structural changes, we say, you're responsible for taking the yoga class. You're responsible for making time for mindfulness. Okay. Do you feel in this analysis that these are, that these are mutually exclusive phenomenon, right? So does it seem to you that we have structural inequalities and women are taking an excessive amount of both familial, but also cultural burdens and economic burdens, right? So as you said, the, the solution to that is sometimes buy some nice organic yoga wear, make yourself feel better, do a mindfulness class as opposed to address the underlying structural inequalities of patriarchy and capitalism that put them in that framework. So is it, in your analysis, are these things mutually exclusive? Can we find a scenario where both of these things are true? Where on one hand, this person, this woman who is dealing with the circumstances that we're describing, gets to get the nice, organic leggings that say, good Lord, please let me be happy today or whatever it says, right? And do a mindfulness class and do a yoga class while simultaneously there is some, some more specific work addressing the structural inequalities. Like in your analysis, how do these play off each other? And to what degree do you see them as actually mutually exclusive? Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that we oftentimes see activists making a case for self-care because political activists can't survive. They can't do the work they do unless they take care of themselves. Um, and so I talk in the book about there being a precedent among especially Black feminist activists in the United States making this explicit. Audre Lorde is famous for saying that self-care goes hand in hand with political activism. So I think that they're absolutely capable of being wedded and should be. Yet I think that in popular spirituality, in our pop culture, we see these spiritual goods oftentimes marketed as wedded to some kind of political or progressive agenda, when in fact they aren't in any real sense, uh, in, in any sort of activist sense. And mm -hmm. so you, you might buy a, a yoga product that says good vibes. You know, we, we're sending good vibes out into the world by buying this product. 
10% of the profits are donated to a charity that feeds poor children. That is not structural political, anti-structural or revolutionary political action. It's charitable giving. Mm. And charitable giving is different from political activism. And it doesn't actually change the, the institutions that are leading to poverty, oppression, uh, climate change. And that's the case I'm making that, you know, we're, in, you know, as scientists are telling us, we're inevitably going to bring about the end of the world through climate change if we don't make radical changes. But instead of making radical changes, we feel good about buying certain products over others and engaging in charitable giving. So this feeds into a kind of another manifestation that you write in your book, which is prison yoga or yoga in prisons, right? Just a tiny bit of backstory from me. I spent a period of time women uh, teaching in a women's maximum security prison in, um, in Dublin, California. One of my students is, it was kind of strange, but it was a, a pretty well-known political prisoner from SDS and the Weather Underground. But that's kind of an aside that very few people would appreciate, probably the, other than you and your scholarship. But in that environment, I knew that, like in, in a way, I was doing this as an outcropping of my political belief system, but I also understood that that was not a political gesture, that it was something different, that mm -hmm. I was interested in working within a correctional institution because I had a certain political orientation and belief system, but when I was doing it, it didn't feel like political work. It felt like personal work. And so it's interesting to read your narrative that, that kind of, I think, very well fits into some of the other things that you're describing that yoga for prisoners may be very nice and helpful for prisoners, but it in no way presents the kind of structural reform that would hopefully reduce incarceration. It doesn't yeah, do anything, right? It doesn't yeah. do, go ahead. You're the guest. Dismantle the prison industrial complex. It does nothing for it, for sure. Okay. It's almost like a town that is like an industry town, right? Where there's a big mill, and then the store in town is owned by the same company. The clothing is owned by the same company. It's almost like this industrial scenario in which the prisoner is the sole person that is responsible for their rehabilitation as opposed to also sharing some of the burden on the social the social context that may have at least in part led to that incarceration that, that's not to take individuals to remove individual responsibility but it's to say hey there is also a social responsibility and yoga in prison doesn't address the socio-political economic underpinnings uh, that may be some of the causal variables in this person's life. Yeah, and I think that uh, for the most part, those teaching and the yoga and, the and mindfulness in prison contexts, I think many of them are committed to the same kind of political agenda that you and I are, to dismantling the prison industrial complex. But 
to undermining anti-Black racism. So it's not that they are they hold the wrong commitment. So they're not committed to these things. But the, the discourses, again, of the yoga programs themselves betray a sort of neoliberal governmentality or individual governmentality. Again, the burden is put on the individual prisoner to heal. And so I talk about this expression, heal from the inside out, that you hear from some of these prison yoga programs, particularly the Prison Yoga Project. And this idea, again, that the healing starts with inside the individual prisoner, but that the pain and trauma caused came from outside that prisoner. It came from institutionalized racism and in many cases, and that's a sort of structural violence that is going to carry on and affect individual after individual after individual if we do not demand structural revolution and change. So that's how I, you know, where, where I'm drawing the connection between these sort of, you know, non and non-commodified forms of yoga, and where I still see these neoliberal ideas as dominant. Would you do all of us a quick favor? We are using the word neoliberal quite a bit, and this is like if this is much more a word that comes from politics and economics and Milton Friedman and all these things than it is a common yoga term. Can you just unpack for our audience, for anyone that isn't familiar with what are the underpinnings of neoliberalism? Yeah, so I'm using neoliberalism to talk not just about capitalist economic structures, but the, the sort of uh, governing rationality or way of thinking that governs our lives, that goes hand in hand with capitalism. And so, whereas by capitalism, we're usually talking about economic structures, by neoliberalism, I'm talking about a way of thinking that goes hand in hand with those capitalist economic structures. And primarily neoliberal thinking puts the burden of success and health, wellness and healing for those who have been the victims of trauma or pain or violence on individuals. So that's what I I mean by individual governmentality. Individuals are expected to govern themselves. And this, despite the fact that we know that individuals are largely not able to govern ourselves because we're born into social structures that are larger than ourselves and determine things like our class and our gender norms and our racialized norms. And so we are born into an inequitable system of systems, right? We multiple systems. And so neoliberal governmentality says, we are individually responsible for working our way out of those if we are born at the bottom. Right. You aren't suggesting that we don't have an important role in that process, but that we have an important role in that process. And there is also a macro process that is actually bigger than just the individual involved. And so in addition to whatever 
sense of personal responsibility, there is also a broader social environment that we're all born into. And that environment also is needs to be addressed. Right. And our capacity for individual choice, I'm not suggesting that human beings can't make choices or take responsibility for their actions, but the extent to which we have control over our circumstances is very small compared to the extent to which we don't have control because of you know where we were born and what race we're identified with, our gender, our class. These are factors that are not in our control and that largely determine the course of our lives and possibilities for our lives. Right. So in this book, and also one of the things that we talked about in my training with regards to your previous book, Selling Yoga, was that you don't break anything down along the the common trope of East versus West, right? In this book, you don't set up some narrative that the West has appropriated the East, the West is the world center of global domination and the East is a happy, pure spiritual place that is being overrun, right? You talk much more clearly, or at least I read through, especially with your inclusion, both of some Western-based businesses, including Spiritual Gangster, but you also talk about Ramdev and you talk about Patanjali Aryaved, right? And you look at the global reality of neoliberalism and capitalism and politics and taste culture. You look at it in a global prism. You don't look at it in an in, in East versus West prism. So I'm curious about that because I, I still feel like a lot of people in the yoga worlds think that there are these very clear political divisions between East and West and that the West has kind of gotten it wrong, but the East is like still kind of getting it all right. That doesn't really seem to come through with when, when you have decent analysis. Well, I, I think that we are experiencing an unprecedented global culture, right? Because of yes. forces of industrialization and capitalism, we um, are no longer separated by national boundaries. And so we see the rise and dominance of not just capitalism, but again, this neoliberal governmentality, this idea that it's through consumption, individual consumption, that we improve the quality of our lives. And that individual consumers are responsible then for making the right consumer choices in order to improve the quality of our lives. This kind of thing we see across the world in global cities everywhere. And so that's in my attempt to make that point. Yeah, I draw off examples from both the US and Canada, as well as India. It doesn't mean that we're both experiencing exactly the same thing just sure. because we're all participating in global consumer culture. There is still a difference uh, and difference. Uh, there are different power dynamics at play. So I am deeply concerned about the politics of cultural appropriation and the fact that 
there is a power dynamic at play when white American consumers consume products that are marketed as authentically Indian or spiritual because they come from India. This is political insofar as there is a historical power difference due to colonialism, the history of colonialism. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting kind of like playing off of that. I have to be honest, like I had, I had never heard, I, I, I knew about Narendra Modi and I knew about the Hindutva movement and I know kind of the right wing nationalism that's there and kind of the way in which yoga day was used, but I had never heard of Patanjali Aryaved. I had mm-hmm. never heard of Ramdev. Right. Mm-hmm. I, and so that, that was, those were just, that was like interesting narrative to read. Like even like, obviously it's political and social, but it was also just an interesting story to read. Like I, I had no idea, like the scope of this infrastructure. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, is this also cultural appropriation? Like, is it, even though Ramdev and Patanjali Aryaved are contemporary Indian nationalists and or nationalist business, they are clearly packaging a historical product that is pretty historically inaccurate. It's kind of convoluted, right? There's this kind of packaging of a historical product to sell to a modern environment, but it's not a white Westerner selling an Indian product. It's a contemporary Indian nationalist selling the belief of what used to be. And I'm just so interested in in how you think about how that fits into appropriation. Is it similar? Is it different? I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I absolutely see it as an example of cultural appropriation. You can just look at the name of the company itself. Right, right. Right. So there you've got this this CEO of a large corporation selling packaged products to the masses in India and beyond and profiting off of uh, Patanjali and the authenticity implied by that name and its association with the Yoga Sutras, which are often imagined as the classic source on yoga. Again, by many within and certainly beyond the boundaries of India. And so I don't think it's the same as when white spiritual consumers appropriate from South Asian cultures. Um, It's a different kind of cultural appropriation, though, where those in power, both with regard to uh, religious authority, political authority, economic power, are exploiting the cultural cachet of certain names, traditions, cultures for their own purposes. I wrote down a quote from the book. You write, and this goes this goes back to to Modi, right? But but it's kind of all in the in the same sphere. You write, despite Modi's effort to claim yoga for India, the findings of historical and social scholarship on yoga suggest that it cannot be 
said to definitively originally originate or belong to anyone or any particular state of religion, state or religion, right? And so to me, this is really interesting because it's not that yoga and India, like yoga and India clearly have a historical, in unbelievably important relationship, but what has happened with, with Modi is he has leveraged that and exaggerated that to take ownership in order to drive a political agenda. Right, yeah, and so historically yoga has never been one thing. It's been practiced by many different religious traditions. And whereas Modi attempts to instrumentalize yoga toward, as you put it, his own political aims, particularly his neoliberalism and his Hindutva agenda, which has made many Muslims living in India uncomfortable with his yoga agenda to make yoga a national practice. I don't have any problem with school children practicing yoga, but I do have a problem with school children practicing Modi's version of Mm. yoga because Modi's version very narrowly defines yoga in Hindu terms. And yoga can't be definitively said to be a historically Hindu practice at the exclusion of Buddhists, Muslims, uh, Jains, and other religious communities um, that are South Asian. And so it's the way in which he shapes and defines what he claims is authentic yoga that is indigenous to India that makes me uncomfortable. And I see it again as kind of going hand in hand with his political agenda. Likewise with Ramdev, who has made the claim that yoga cures homosexuality. There's nothing in the historical record to suggest that yoga is a cure for a particular sexual orientation. (laughs) No, there is not. It is part of the great historical tradition of yogis exaggerating very broad and unsubstantiated claims, though. There's just something about being a yoga teacher, I swear, where like, you just say stuff. And I mean, you know, like we are learning more and more and more not to do that. And I'm mostly joking, but like the, the historical culture of yoga and hyperbolic claim making is nothing new. Like, it's just nothing new. It's always been there. We make these claims because they empower us, right? If we say, you know, I come to me, I'll teach you yoga and it'll cure you of cancer. A lot of people are going to buy my products. Uh, sure. And so likewise, in a uh, homophobic society where sexual minorities are systematically oppressed, um, if Ramdev says yoga cures homosexuality, that makes his products profitable. Mm. I, one more topic I want to get your thoughts on, and it's the only place that I can imagine listeners are thinking up to this point, hey, wait a, wait a second. So what I want to bring up is there are a lot of genuinely political, genuinely socially engaged yogis and yoga organizations. There's a lot of them, but one of the ones that comes off to the mind to me is off the mat, Sean Korn and Carrie Kelly and many of others 
who are doing a lot and they have done so much work over the years for anti-racism. They've done so much work over the years, especially with Sean looking and helping working with victims of sexual trafficking and sexual violence. And one of the things that that community and some others right now is really working to push back against is the infiltration of QAnon into the wellness space. So I want to get your thoughts, not, not necessarily on those individuals, but much of the narrative here is that the is that the pop cultural iconography that says, don't worry, be happy, not only can fundamentally undermine politics, but it can contain them. But we also have people that are longtime yogis, are well-known yogis, who really genuinely work towards an active and progressive political agenda. So what are your thoughts and, and did you come across much of that within your research, much of those groups or those organizations and those individuals who are committed yogis and committed, genuine, hardworking, progressive activists? Yeah, I think uh, that's where my work kind of started on this book. I wanted to actually write a book about those communities that I thought were genuinely engaging in, you know, intentional institutional restructuring in order to resist things like capitalist commodification, cultural appropriation, patriarchy. I absolutely have seen these communities. I think they, they exist, but they're very much on the margins mm. of the yoga industry. And as I was starting to do the research for the, pro the for this project that ended up with um, the publication of Peace, Love, Lit Yoga. I became increasingly, I would say, um, honestly, pessimistic. Were you going to um, say suspect? I, I feel like you are, you said pessimistic. I feel like you were going to say suspect, right? Oh, like yes. a little, yeah. And, you know, it's, again, it's not that I ever denied that those communities exist. It's simply that they're so few and far between. Sure became more and more important to me to produce a, a, a project that I describe as being concerned with cultural diagnostics, hmm. right? This project doesn't aim to envision an alternative form of spirituality or yoga that would be more radical. It, it's not constructive. It, it is a deconstructive project that looks to you know diagnose the problems of our culture. Got it. And I see that as you know more my project. That's what I do. I'm a cultural diagnostician, and so I leave it to others who are you know the activists and the ones who are building these communities to show us what alternatives look like, right? But I'm not the visionary. Um, Andrea, thank you so much. You know, it's so nice. I always feel like talking to you, even just these two times I've spoken with you, it is this melding of my of my current world with a little bit more of my past world. Not, not that those are two completely separate worlds, but having been, having studied radical political philosophy in college and having uh, worked with very specific activism for a long period of time and now primarily sitting in the yoga world. 
it's nice to put on that cultural analysis critique thinking cap and have these conversations with you. So thanks a ton for being here and write another book. We'll have another conversation or two. Sound good? Yes, I will, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I found an interesting interview about Ram Dev in the New York Times that I will link to on the show notes page. And I will also link to Andrea Jane's book on Amazon. You can find the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 215. If you enjoy the podcast and you would like to leave a five-star rating and review, we always appreciate it. It helps people to continue to find this information. And thanks so much for sharing it. I, I notice the shares a lot. I try to always reshare them when I see them. And it's, it's just such good feedback for us to have when we know that an episode really resonates with you. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.